Now, as we've noted with regards to the Song of Solomon, the most basic understanding is it's a song. It's not one gigantic song. It's a song broken into parts. And regardless of the commentaries that you would read, there is a lot of ambiguity into where each part begins and where each part ends. We do find ourselves probably uh, in a continuation of a scene, though we'll enter a second song, transitioning from chapter three, the end of chapter three, into chapter four. At the end of chapter three, we have this beautiful, wonderful presentation of the bride, the Shulamite, coming to her wedding day, along with the king or the beloved. Presumably, between the two chapters, they are married. And as we get into chapter four, we're going to peel back the curtains and witness some romance. We're going to witness, best understood, the honeymoon the wedding night, the beloved and his bride's first night together. Admittedly, the text here is provocative. It's colorful, but it's intended by God to be such for God created sex. And he determined how sex was to be best enjoyed within monogamy, a marital relationship. Admittedly, we're going to giggle a little, and it's going to get a little awkward, but bear with us. Song of Solomon, chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Most of the chapter will be spoken of by the groom. Behold. when When you run across the word behold, It's kind of an old English term. In in the original Hebrew, it's behold. Whoa. His eyes get a glimpse and he's beholden. Behold. You are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. The repetition here adds emphasis Not a great translation from Hebrew into English. Fair seems a bit like an insult. And yet in the Hebrew, this word fair, it it means most beautiful. So as you imagine the scene after the ceremony, you've got the bride and the groom and, and the marital suite. And she walks in. Behold, you're a knockout, baby. You are a knockout. Emphasis. You have dove's eyes behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Mount Gilead. Now, you're going to find that the poetry here and the symbolism and the metaphors that are used are a little antiquated. They're in a bit of a different cultural context. We're going to try our best to to articulate and unpack what he's describing. So she walks in. Wow. Behold, you're, you're beautiful, man. You're beautiful. And then, and then he, and then he, he, he's enraptured by her eyes before he sees anything else. Before she undresses before this, he sees her eyes. You have dove's eyes. Now this is not a new symbol presented in this particular song, Uh, dove's eyes speak of her purity, 
It speaks of her innocence, the eyes, the gateway to the soul. She's gentle. He sees her. This is a good thing that it doesn't begin. You have vultures' eyes. Or you have the eyes of an eagle. No, it's gentle. There's an innocence, a purity. Behind your veil. Now, there's some debate in regards to whether or not this was a literal veil or if this was just speaking in, um, again, the continuation of a metaphor. There's a bunch of debate in regards to whether or not the Jews at this particular time period even wore veils. But, you know, I like the fact that before, before the groom can do anything else, before he proceeds any further, he has to remove her veil. He has to unmask her. He sees her eyes. She's gentle. She's innocent. But then he takes her veil off. We know that because he's going to describe everything behind the veil. But you know, I, there's something beautiful about that. Exhortation to the fellas. You know, sometimes, sometimes before you proceed any further, your wife needs to be unmasked. She needs you to see her, not as an object, but as a person. That sometimes after a long day, a wife can come in veiled. She feels ugly. She doesn't feel pretty. This groom, he, he removes the veil first and he sees her hair. And he describes her hair like a flock of goats descending down a hillside. Now, these goats, they were black. And so what he's describing is probably the flowing locks of her long hair as they're cascading down. He removes the veil. She lets her hair down. And wow, he's enraptured. Now, what we have here is what in, in Arabic terms you would call a wasf, W-A-S-F. This is a common poetic term, uh, a type of poem where you would describe either a man or a woman, their physical physique, using descriptive terminology, working from the head down to the toes. It's a very common thing that you find uh, in Arabic literature. That being said, this predates all Arabic literature, making this the first example of this type of poetic expression. So he's going to, starting with her hair, he takes off her veil, he's got the, the eyes, he's going to work down her body, and he's going to describe her in beautiful terms. Now, why does he do this? I mean, I mean why? What, what's the point? What's the purpose? Well, he wants her to feel special, to feel pretty, to feel noticed. And so we have this poetic expression, beginning with the, the eyes, and then we have the hair. Continuing to verse two, your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep, which have come up from washing, every one of which bears twins, and none is barren among them. What does he say? He's saying, your teeth are white. It's a good color for teeth. And there's twins, which means that she has all the teeth on the top 
and they match all of the teeth on the bottom. So she's not missing any teeth. Your teeth are beautiful and they're white and you have all of them. That's a benefit. None is barren among them. Your lips are like a strand of scarlet. And your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like a piece of pomegranate. <laughs> your lips are like a strand of scarlet. It's, it's possible that she has applied a bit of makeup, that she's painted her lips. Interesting that we find that to be an attractive thing, men. I, I also like the fact that it's like thin scarlet. Again, the cultural references here, you know, today, um, we want big, luscious, plump, filled lips, filler lips, Botoxed lips. He's praising her for her natural beauty, her lips. Again, from the teeth to the lips, like a strand of scarlet, your mouth is lovely. The temples, like a piece of pomegranate, more likely he's complimenting the, the rosy complexion. If it was the inside of a pomegranate, that, that would be weird. And he would be complimenting her for her acne, which, you know, everybody's got their thing. Maybe the old boy's all right with it. It's likely rosy cheeks. He sees her lips and her eyes, and she, he's just working down. Man, you're beautiful. Your lips, your mouth, your temples, your neck is like the Tower of David built for an armory on which hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. Fellas, try that one tonight. What's he, what's he speaking to? You know, the neck, the, the neck and more of a, a, the, a, the metaphor speaks of character, speaks of strength. It's why we get kind of the phrase, hey, that per that's, she's stiff-necked, you know, she's stubborn, like the description of the character. So when he's saying your neck is like the Tower of David, this is his father, this was, this was a beautiful, strong structure. He's describing the armament, he's describing the shields. He's saying, hey, your character, your neck, it's a beautiful thing, there's integrity Speaking of the shields, she gives him strength. She provides him encouragement and confidence. Moving from the neck, verse five, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies. Your breasts match, that's good. They're twins. They look the same. One's not bigger than the other. They're proportional. He says that they're like, he says, fawns. They're playful. He wants to play with them. They invite the touch to be petted. Again, provocative. It's their wedding night. Your breasts, I want to pet them. 
I want to grab them. They look, they look awesome. And then, and then he references, again, twins, they match, of a gazelle. Now, there's a little debate in regards to the gazelle. This is my favorite interpretation of it, is that apparently in Solomon's reign, one of the, the delicacies of his table was gazelle. It was kind of a wild game. You'd go hunt. So what is he saying? He's saying, hey, they match. I want to pet them. I want to fondle them. And I want to eat them. Your breasts. And then he adds, verse six, until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. Again, he's continuing his way down her body. This idea of of myrrh and frankincense we'll find later in the song places the context of her female area. So he's going from the breast, now he's going down, and he's like, I'm going down to the mountain, the essence, the source of myrrh and frankincense. And he's saying, we're going to do this He says, until the day breaks. And you can hear in the background, Lionel Richie saying, all night long. We're going to spend all night together exploring. You hear another song, your body is a wonderland. That was a John Mayer reference for the older generation. She sings, crash into me. That's a Dave Matthews reference. I'm just getting them all out. And then he kind of summarizes his observation. He says, he declares in verse seven, you are all fair. Again, beautiful, all beautiful, my love. And there is no spot in you. You know, beauty is an interesting thing. On one aspect, beauty is an objective attribute. There are things that are objectively beautiful um, that we recognize culturally. That's a beautiful thing that everyone, regardless of where you live or grow up or your ethnicity or your background, you see a sun, a sunrise, a sunset, and you're like that, that, I don't care what your opinion is. That's beautiful. There are things in the world that are objectively beautiful. Beautiful. It's not about interpretation or perspective. They're beautiful. On the flip side to it, there is also a subjective aspect of beauty. Is is this woman spotless? Is this woman without any blemish? Well, no human being is. No human being is without spot or blemish. Not every part of her is perfect. That said, it is from his perspective. He sees her as she is, objectively with, I'm sure, some spots and blemishes. But to him, she is absolutely his standard of beauty. To him, there is no spot. There is no blemish. And she might be like, do you not see the cellulite? He's like, It's beautiful. It's like the dimples of a golf ball. You know, I mean, he comes up with his own phraseology. Like, 
to him, this woman is his standard. And she will always be his standard. Fellas, I hope you understand, and you should understand, that your wife should absolutely be your standard of what is beautiful. That's the smart play. It's the best approach, and it will get you out of trouble. The Bible speaks a lot about guarding one's eyes. That's your woman, and she's your standard. And you should never compare her to anyone else because she's what's beautiful. She should be what's beautiful to you. And therefore, there is no spot and there is no blemish. Now, here's the the catch. The wedding night. You are all together lovely. You're beautiful. There's no spot. There's no blemish. You got it going on, baby. Does she stay that way? (laughs) Is the woman she looking at? with the breasts and the curves and everything he's seeing, will she stay like that? Really, like, give her a week, and she probably won't look like that. Seriously. Give, give her a couple babies, the body changes. Life happens, the body changes. And yet for him, here's the catch. And for you, here's the catch. No matter how she changes, she always remains the standard. When she was skinny, you were into skinny. When she put on some pounds, you liked a little cushion. You're good either way. If she has short hair, that's beautiful. If she decides to grow her hair out, you're hot, baby. Like no matter what she does, no matter how she changes, she needs to be and always remain your standard for what is beautiful. Again, the objective but subjective. See, for him, he can declare, honestly, you are beautiful. All of you is beautiful, my love. There's no spot. And when she changes, he can repeat it. And when she feels ugly, he can reinforce it. You know, fellas, again, women, women need that reassurance. It's a tough thing being a woman. Life is hard. Kids are rough. Birth. Your wife will go through all kinds of changes. Some she likes, some she doesn't. And she'll feel insecure because she will compare herself to the world around her, and she'll even compare herself to the figure she used to have. She'll look back and see pictures at the pool where she could wear that bathing suit that (laughs) she'll never wear again. And she'll feel insecure. She'll compare herself to her friends. She'll compare herself to a former self. But you need to reinforce always that what she is right then is all beautiful and all good in your eyes. Now to do that and to do that honestly, you should guard your eyes from looking at other women. What is beautiful? It's that woman that shares your name, that shares your life, says verse 8, he invites her. He says, come with me from Lebanon, my spouse. Now, this is the first time he'll say spouse. First time in the whole book. From this point forward, he'll reiterate 
her being his spouse, which indicates this is the wedding night. Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse, with me from Lebanon. Look from the top of Amana, from the top of Sinir in Hermon, from the lion's dens, from the mountains of the leopards. Now, a lot of the commentaries you'll read try to paint this as an indication or invitation uh, to take a trip. Like, hey, we'll go to Lebanon. We'll take a trip. That seems really awkward to me that you're in the middle of lovemaking and then you're like, hey, let's get out of here. Come away with me. This is, that's, it's, it's, it's weird. The other interpretation gets more provocative and we're gonna go with that because of the way that the chapter ends. When he says, come with me, and then he refers to Lebanon and he speaks of these, these various uh, mountains in Lebanon. He's speaking of literally the, the referencing here is the southernmost peaks. So he has undressed her. And then what is he inviting her? Come with me, literally look down to the southernmost peaks. He's talking about his junk. He's undressed her, and now he's inviting her, hey, look down. See the lion? You see the leopard? With me. No, it's not, it's not from me. It's, it's with me. They're, it's a partnering together, which then makes sense because what is, again, they're, they're, they're in foreplay. In verse 9, he says, you have ravished my heart. My sister, my spouse, you have ravaged my heart. Literally, ravaged. My heart is racing. Blood is flowing. Pulse is rising. Why? Because she's looking down and grabbing hold of the southernmost peaks. And he's running. He says, with one look of your eyes, with one link of your necklace, how fair, how beautiful is my love. How beautiful is your love. One translator says, you're real good at what you're doing right now. You're good. This feels awesome. This is wonderful. Again, my heart's racing. My heart's pounding. The look of your eye, you've turned me on. Your necklace, you're good at what you're doing. You're good in bed, baby. My sister, my spouse. How much better than wine is your love? This translation of your love literally is your caressing. Better than wine is what you're doing to me right now. Wine is always a symbol of supreme pleasure. <laughs> Even the best wine doesn't touch this. Again, he's feeling the emotions of it. He says, in the scent of your perfumes, then all spices. It's, it's interesting, just again, they're making love and you have the incorporation of multiple senses. You know, we're typically as fellas, terrible love makers. Fellas, let me give you just a simple suggestion. Incorporate more senses. Light a candle. Buy her some perfume. 
incorporate smell. In addition to just sight, smell, touch, feel. The scent of your perfume. It's better than all spices. Literally, your natural odor. You smell great. Your lips, oh my spouse, drip as the honeycomb. This word drip, it, it, it's, it's used throughout a lot of the pro- prophetic books of the Bible. And the word, it, it means to speak. It's, it's a reference to even prophetic speech, to drip. He's saying, your words, your lips drip what you're saying to me. Do you talk when you make love? Ladies, do you, do you whisper in his ear? Do you speak words of affirmation, encouragement? I mean, I mean, the man has said a lot, right? That we have recorded for us. We don't know what she's saying to him, but he's affirming here that what she's saying gets him going. It turns him on. Your lips drip as the honeycomb. It's sweet. Honey and milk are under your tongue. Now, how would he know that? Fun fact, the French didn't invent the French kiss. We have a reference right here in the 10th century BC. He knows that the honey and the milk under the tongue, because they're kissing, they're making out. He says, and the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. I like this because the the indication here is that she's not completely nude because they're making love. He's smelling her. They're kissing. They're they're fondling. They're caressing. They're speaking to each other. Now, whatever she's wearing is pretty see-through, you know, because of the descriptions and the things, but she's wearing a nightie, a negligee, some lingerie. Women, men are very visual. Men are visual. And there is an exhortation. You know, how you dress reveals a particular attitude just in general. Like we we know that with our kids. There's the old saying, you need to dress not for the job you have, but the job you want. Dress for success. You know, ladies, if, if you're wanting that connection with your man to happen, the old t-shirt that you got from your team building exercise at work might not be the best way to go. The one with stains on it. Wearing a parka to bed not articulating an intention. But if you come in, dress for success, success will be had. She's wearing something. And she's got, again, she's got her natural odor. But there's a smell to the garment. He can smell it. She's got a perfume on. Again, the incorporation of smell in addition to sight and to touch 
Verse 12. He says, a garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. A spring shut up, a fountain sealed. This word garden in the Hebrew, Ghana, it really speaks of a covered or hidden place. And we understand from the context that when he references her garden, he's speaking of her vagina. Let's just get that out there. A covered hidden place. A place where there is a fountain of water. And he's speaking to this. But what is he saying? He's saying that it's enclosed. He's affirming her virginity. Her sanctity. Again, he's working down her body. And he gets to the source of pleasure for her. This garden that's been sealed. It's been shut up. Now, who seals a garden? Well, the owner of the garden. So the woman herself has made a decision to put a wall around her garden, to protect her garden, to seal it off. She's going to invite him into her garden, but nobody else. This is her place of purity. It's a fountain, a spring shut up, a fountain sealed. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits, fragrant henna with spikenard, spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon. He's just naming stuff. With all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all the chief spices, a fountain of gardens, a well of living waters and streams from Lebanon. He gets to her garden and he starts just, he's describing something that doesn't exist. Like none of these fruits, none of these spices, none of this stuff would ever be kept in one garden. No one could ever plant this stuff, but he's, he's calling it paradise. That's what he's saying. He's like, I have, I have struck gold. This is paradise. And he's just rattling off all these things. He's like, wow, she has kept this for him. She has sealed it up. She has protected it. And now she's opening for him that he can come in and he can enjoy it and he can gain satisfaction as well as her. That the spring is is unleashed, that water flows forth. And then we have an addition to the fountain of the garden, the well of living waters, we also have the streams from Lebanon, which then if you go back to the earlier context of the peaks of Lebanon, he's describing the mixing of fluids. We're together, we've got your waters, we've got my streams, and we are doing this. Amazing. She interjects. She says, awake. O north wind, and come, O south. Blow upon my garden, that its spices may flow out. Let my beloved come to his garden, and eat its pleasant fruits. This word awake, it's the same word that we found in the seventh verse of the second chapter, as well as the fifth verse of the third, when the Shulamite warns, 
don't awaken until love can commence. And now she's saying, awaken. There's no reason to stop. Let's go. Awaken. The north wind, the north wind in this part of the world would, would move away the clouds. It would, it would usher in sunshine and a sunny day. And the south would bring moisture and warmth blow upon my garden. She's aroused. She's inviting him in. No, he's not forcing himself. There's no aggression. These are two people becoming one, making love. Again, he's not making love to an object. She's not a thing. And here's the other, the other, the other thought, is this clearly took some time. They have fun together. Let me, let me ask, you can learn a lot about the intention of the individual based upon how much time they're willing to invest in making love. L ladies, you can tell very quickly that he's really not interested in you that he's not really interested in taking care of your needs, that he's not really, that his interest that night is just getting off. And how do you know that? Because it took a minute. <laughs> you didn't even get naked. And I know the old adage that, you know, two minutes in heaven is better than one minute in heaven. But still, this took time. Both of them, they're together. They use their words, they talk, they fondle, they whisper, there's foreplay. How long does it take you to make love? Are you just looking for a quickie? Or are you trying to make something? Again, I, I'm struck by just the time. I think it's an exhortation to us all. Like the amount of time that you take reveals your intention. Fellas, it reveals your intention. If you want her to feel like a piece of meat, like an object, like a thing, well, go for it. You know how to do it. But if you want her to feel loved, to feel cherished, and here's the thing, you know, the longer it takes is often the better experience. Like when you really do take time and you really do invest and you do kind of work at it and not just in the bed, if you take the day and you're working it all day, you have a plan for that night. But it starts in the morning. Instead of just rushing out, you whisper something into her ear. I'm coming home later, baby. And then you entice the imagination. You send her some text messages throughout the day. You call her. Maybe you plant little letters around the house, little notes for her to find. 
Maybe you put something on her dashboard, a flower. If you take the whole day and you build anticipation, that night's going to be great. Take time. Verse 1 of chapter 5. So, again, keep in mind, there are no chapters, there are no verses. These were all added in by the translators to make referencing easier. So I could say, hey, chapter 4, verse 1, or chapter 5, verse 1, and it'd be easy for you to find the place. But they're not in the original. And this is one of those chapter breaks that's just ridiculous. It's terrible. It's the wrong place. In fact, it should be verse 2 if you want to put a chapter break. Because this is the continuation of the same scene. Now the beloved, he says, I have come to my garden, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I've eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my milk. There's references again of of myrrh, spices, honeycomb, honey, wine, and milk are all all references of, of male and female fertility. They're symbols. He's speaking in the past tense, this declaration. He, he rolls over, I have come into my garden. It's a, the thank you. This was wonderful and it was beautiful. Now, please note that this is the middle verse in the entire rock, rock opera. This is the middle verse. And in some regards, what we find here is a declaration central to the theme of the book. Now, we'll read here, to his friends. Eat, O friends, drink, yes, drink deeply, O beloved ones. Now, that that would be awkward if it's his friends. You know, between verses 16 and verse 1, they've consummated. He declares, that was awesome. And then his buddies are like, Hey, no, like that, that doesn't make any sense. And again, that's not in the original that, that added parentheses to his friends. Some of your translations might not even have it in there. Um, there is a lot of debate into who's speaking. Is this the beloved? Is this the Shulamite? Is this another character? The answer is this is another character. Okay. So they have, they have made love. They've had sex. They have consummated this beautiful thing. They have celebrated their oneness. And then you get this declaration, eat, oh friends, drink, yes, drink deeply. Uh, Speaking of what? Speaking of what they just did. Speaking of sex, speaking of sexual relations, speaking of this beautiful thing that just occurred. There's a declaration, yes, do it. That's awesome. Enjoy it. Drink it and eat it and suck it up, oh beloved ones. So who can make that statement? Who can affirm that what just happened is holy and sanctified and good and a blessing? It is another voice. It is not the groom and it is not the bride. I contend that it is the voice of God. It is the author of the book, of the song, but we know ultimately the author is God. 
So what you find here, after they have sex and they fondle each other and they get each other off and they mix liquids and it's messy and there's perfume and the sheets are all over the place and the hair's all crazy. God speaks down and he's like, yes, yes, absolutely. That is good. Do that again and again and again. I put my stamp of approval on that. How interesting. You know, for centuries, sex was viewed as a dirty thing within Christianity. You can trace it back to the Greeks and their influence on Augustine. The Greeks elevated the mind over the body. And thus they said that there was a a higher plane of being rather than the more animalistic tendency that we needed to be governed by the logic and the mind and the will as opposed to desire. It had a profound impact on Augustine, the way that he presented things, the exhortation celibacy was a higher plane than, than this barbaric thing. In fact, over and over and over again, this is where you get the origins of the idea that sex shouldn't be enjoyed, it's for procreation. It's to make babies. In fact, if, if, we, if there was a better way to do it, we just have to do it this way and it's gross and it's, 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 it's ugly and, and no. And yet God here is contradicting that entirely. I, I ran across this quote. Let me read it for you. This unabashed reveling and creatureliness must not be cramped by thoughts that it is all somehow beneath our dignity and that we would be better praying than making love. For this is a false dichotomy that must be banished forever. We do not need to sanctify an entirely natural act by having simultaneous spiritual thoughts about God and our spouse's arms. I love this line. Bouncing buttocks, phallic thrusts, heaving bodies, sighs and moans and giggles are all part of the God-given natural order of things. God celebrates this. It's interesting. Again, we've noted it before. Humanity is the only species that has the inclination to wear clothing. Your dog doesn't want to wear the sweater. Your cat could care less. God gave them covering. Fur. Yet it's, it's humanity. Interestingly, if, if you have conversations with an evolutionist, ask why that is. Seems like, a, a, like the, the, if the species is evolving, that the hairiest among us, would be surviving, and that those without hair would be dead. The inclination to wear clothing, where did that come from? Well, the Bible answers that. It was the immediate consequence, the result of sin in the garden. Man sinned and immediately had this inclination, a compulsion, a desire to cover themselves. And and, and What's even more interesting 
is it's not just that humanity had the inclination to cover themselves. You would have thought that they would have covered the parts that, that yielded the sin. That Eve would have wore gloves because it was her hands that reached out for the fruit. Or they would have wore a veil over their face because it was their mouths that ate the fruit. No, no, no. What, did they, what were they inclined to cover? Their sexual organs. And they're married. They've seen each other naked. And there's no other human beings around. Right? I mean, the only place you might walk around naked is in your house before kids. And now that you have kids, it's probably just your bedroom. Like you've limited it. We cover our sexual organs. Why? Because there's a shame. There's an insecurity. We realize that something is broken. God said, be fruitful and multiply. But now there's a shame. See, there's something important about our sexual identity and our sexual organ. And then what becomes the place where we return to Eden? The only place that we bear ourselves and unveil ourselves to another human being. The only place where we get naked again. It's with our spouse. And it's in sexual activity. And it comes back, may you be one flesh. And God says, I, the Lord your God, am one, a cod. That there is something holy and divine pre-sin about a man and a woman coming together, distinctly different, but becoming one, one flesh. God sees this. And when God sees it, he says, yes, yes, enjoy that. Do that. That's holy. That's sanctified. I'm in that. Again, the world has opinions about sex. The world has opinions about, about your freedom with sex. This woman protected her virginity and gave it only to another. And they enjoyed something. Now, one of the difficulties of teaching a passage like this and, and speaking of such the innocence, because this is innocent. This is the ideal, right? This is the ideal. What becomes difficult is that how many of us actually experience the ideal? Very few. I think the average age in America of, of, a, of when someone loses their virginity is 18, 19 now. We have opinions and, and we have a, a cultural ideal and, and how things are presented. And, and, and you, maybe, have carried some of the baggage of life into the bedroom. 
don't miss that God is celebrating this. And we believe and we teach that the essence of the gospel message, it's not the bettering of you. God is not Dr. Phil trying to give you tips to make you a better version of yourself. No, the Bible's like, you're messed up. In fact, what you need is to be someone totally different. That's the gospel. The gospel is you're not fixable. But you can be transformed into somebody else. And this is where you get rebirth, to be born again, to be given a fresh start. And that freshness happens every time we come back to the cross of Christ. And so you look at this and, and there's, there's some of us, we celebrate it, this is great. And there's others that we have this condemnation and we feel down and it's like, I ruined something. No, yes, you might have. But God is a renewer. We break things and he fixes it. And he transforms it. The Bible says, I am a new creation in Christ Jesus. Sex is to be celebrated. It's to be enjoyed. But God gives us the parameters of it. And if you've gone outside of those parameters, I, I think you, I'm not, I don't have to convince you of the damage. But I invite you to come back into the ideal that Jesus makes all things new. So Father, Lord, we just leave this holy text here.